O.R. New York. After you've gone and left me crying. Good morning. It's time for the Martha Dean program. And I'm playing Martha tonight. And left me crying. Knee-deep and all that stuff. And kicking it off the hedges. It's up to me, Bloomin' Knickers. George, I'll tell you, it's getting worse and worse. Well, actually, though, there are some people, and I am one of them, who thrives on adversity and rottenness. So I can honestly say it's getting better and better. More things get rotten, better I'm on. After all, if things were all straightened out, where would I be? I mean, how could you make cutting, satirical remarks about your world if your world was the best of all possible worlds? I mean, what would have happened to Voltaire if everything had been hotsy-totsy in France? Where would Mortsall have been if Eisenhower hadn't bumbled? After you go. There's some truth in that, you know, friends. Where would Jules Pfeiffer be if Bernard really made it with chicks? Send to keep Bernard over there in the corner picking his pimples. This is the Martha Dean program. My guest today is John Gambling, and he's going to tell you the time. Yes, performance. It's Friday, and on Friday, like a vast. Like a vast human carbuncle, I begin to get the urge, and I start, I start coming to. Watch me, Matt. Now you're either going to fly solo, or we're going to work here. On Friday night, I start feeling like a human carbuncle. I don't know what it is. Friday night does to me. It goes all the way back to my PFC days. On Friday, you know, you stand there in the barracks and you scratch, and your shirt smells. You have decided not to send it to the laundry. I think this is the most, the most uh, typical smell in the army is a guy who has decided that he's about to be shipped any month now, so he sends nothing to the laundry. And I have worn GI shirts for as long as four and a half years, still without so much as once seeing the inside of an Electrolux laundromat or whatever it is, standing there on a Friday night, just scratching your shirt, smelling. You know, the last notes of retreat have died out. You can hear the thunder of the herd on their way to the latrine. And you're thinking, it's Friday. Any minute now, it's Friday. And I will go striding like a young, like a young carbuncle in the town about to burst. Oh, the juices of life flowing through me in a vast, unbroken stream. A fantastic muscle shoals dam of vitality and life. And that lonesome town that lies there at the other end of the three-day pass. Neosho, Missouri. Lying there just offside the outside limits of Camp Crowder. Lying there in the foothills of the Ozarks. A rough and tumble town with 748 Army-Navy stores, 275 bars, one USO, and six inhabitants. It 
lays down there at the other end of that long trail of winding out of the barracks. Friday night. By God, it's Friday night, man. We is going into town and drink some knee-high orange. We're going to walk around and look at the girls. We're going to stand on the street corner, pick our ears, and wait for something to happen, which it won't. But we are going to dream that it will. That's what Friday night does to all of us here in these big old United States. We begin to itch for Saturday. We begin to figure that tomorrow night it's going to happen. Yeah, standing there in the great barracks of life. Standing there, knowing full well you got a weekend coming up. You got a pass waiting for you down there in the great orderly room of existence. All you got to do is pass inspection tomorrow morning. And you're all set. Atsi, tatsi, hunky dory. Tanto, tanto. Bring it up there, Matt. Big, full, swell. That's it. Swell immensely. That's it. That's it. Is that all there is to that? Looks life itself. No, no, no. Don't bring on the train. We don't need the train. That's... <laughs> yeah, well, that's what the Friday night does to you. Makes you have delusions of normalcy. It makes you have illusions of immediacy. And it even can give you a brief, fleeting belief, however mystical, that you are involved with life itself. Friday night. Oh, oh yes. Uh, there are many times that I have gotten down on, on my veritable knee pads and looked up into the swirling clouds and said, it is Friday and I have made it. Now listen, fellas, watch the show here and don't worry about the controls for the next five minutes. Just watch me here and we will talk about, we'll give you a nomenclature and a rundown of all the controls after the show. All right. Uh, all right, all set now? Okay now? All right, now hit the money button, Matt, before they panic. Light up the kit, you've got a good thing going. Good taste, real, real mild. Good tobaccos. Oh, so mellow. Vintage tobaccos. Flavor blended to the peak of enjoyment. And the Kent filter for extra good taste. Light up a Kent, you've got a good thing going. Kent is the one cigarette for everyone who smokes. Light up a Kent, you've got a good thing going. Light up a Kent, for real good taste. Light up a Kent, you've got a good thing going. Good tobaccos, the Kent filter for good taste going when you light up a Kent. Somehow, cigarettes and sex are intertwined. Maybe that's why people don't want to give them up. You know, getting people to quit smoking cigarettes is almost an impossibility. Maybe it's because there is some... Of course, we could go into all the Freudian stuff, but I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't want to rock too many... You know, speaking for Freudian stuff, a couple of nights ago, and it's Friday, you know, I figure, what the heck, you know, the salesmen are out... Nobody's listening. Mr. Leader's on vacation, something, you know, we can just go. 
Uh, I, a couple of nights ago, we did a little brief bit on, on the new great uh, fantasy world that so many people are becoming more and more involved in. I mean, wild fantasy type thing, where even the person himself will fantasize himself uh, to the point where he believes that if he buys a certain kind of car, he becomes a cowboy. Have you seen those Mustang ads? Where if you buy this car, somehow you'll be ranging the Lone Prairie, and you see that Mustang outlined up there against the sky. They don't talk about overhead valves. They don't talk about transmission or the suspension, they talk about that long, rocky trail of winding through the pass on the way to the great golden, the great golden hills of California, out there where men is men and cars are horses, out there <laughs> where life is real. Well, well, you know, it's, it's amazing how, how life you cannot reproduce. I've, I've worked for a long time in the field of satire and humor. And I found out one thing. You just cannot top reality. You just can't. You cannot be funnier, for example, than the National Association of Broadcasters on their annual convention. It is impossible for me. I, I could do the wildest to take off on, on the NAB convention that you've ever heard in your life, and it doesn't come remotely near the real thing. It just cannot. Now, like the other night, there was somebody sent me a little clipping here from one of these uh, Hollywood-type uh, columnists who, by the way, constantly top themselves in self-induced you know, kind of hypnotic satire of the world that they're involved. In fact, Hollywood itself is, is a peculiar caricature. I've often felt that, that the entire film world, you know, have you noticed the films are getting to be more and more important? People really to discuss films like they're important, you know? This is a, this is a tremendous art form. People want to believe. It's very hard to, it's very hard to convince a guy who is a, uh, cinematique reality fan that what he really is interested is in Bridget Bardot's topography. Uh, he is not, he is that, you know, they never want to admit it. You know, it's a glandular thing. It goes all the way. Uh, and so, so the, 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 the whole concept of the world of film, the whole business of, of immersing yourself into unreality, sitting in a, in a, in a darkened room with a large number of other fellow sufferers, and that great, fantastic soundtrack swells up around you, and you are all going to experience an insight into that real world out there in Second Avenue, you know, where it's happening. Where guys are really fist fighting it out in the doorways, you know, <laughs> and, and, and you you wonder you wonder uh, you wonder what kind of what, what kind of a self self hypnotic creature we are. Listen to this piece out of a Sheila Graham column here. I know, I, I heard Sheila Graham the other night being interviewed on a, on a show. She's very hard to top uh, as a, as a piece of pure human comedy. It's difficult to top her. That she's a She's a walking, I don't know, uh, uh, here, here I, will, I will try to give you in, in, uh, a very rough approximation of her, her accent, which is kind of a dynamic Lady Westchester, uh, vaguely, vaguely, just a vague touch of debauchery about it. I don't know quite where it sneaks in, but it's there, you know, it comes, Hollywood, March 18th. Bridget Bardot is like a little child. You give her a toy or a lollipop, and it makes her day. Jean Moreau is a woman, a mother, a sister, a sweetheart, said young George Hamilton in a telephone call from Milburn, New Jersey, where he is starring in Gigi at the Paper Mill Playhouse. George 
completed recently his leading role with Brigitte and Jean in Viva Maria in Mexico. Quote, It's an action picture, but the women have all the action. I spend all of my time in a wooden yoke, and in one scene, I am raped by Moreau. Talk about the role reversal. <laughs> you know, this is this is the first time I have seen this kind of role reversal. You know, we've often done pieces on the role reversal, the great reversal of the female and the male roles in modern society. Not many people are talking much about it, and when they do, they talk about it very superficially, like uh, recently in a big magazine they had a whole thing about it, but they, they concentrated on things like leather boots. Uh, they concentrated on things like... Uh, uh, hairdos, that kind of stuff. Whereas actually the role reversal is coming in a concept of life itself. Can you imagine being raped by Jean Moreau? Well, it doesn't seem to surprise Sheila Graham. <laughs> and it doesn't seem certainly to surprise uh, George Hamilton, who was playing opposite her. If you can call being raped by Jean Moreau playing opposite her, I presume that the... But the of course, I've seen him act, so I don't suppose it would surprise him, but nevertheless... <laughs> Nevertheless, the, 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 whole, the whole scene is uh, it's very hard to pu uh, put into words. Now, uh, Friday night, you know, somebody, somebody wrote me here a couple of nights ago and said, you know, Shepard, he says, uh, I notice that there are a large number of people get very irritated when you mention the role reversal. And I suspect those who are bored by it are those who wish to ignore it, uh, either that or who have already made the change. <laughs> if you know what I mean, and and I will I will get I will get at least a half dozen letters immediately after I've done one of these shows where I even mention the role reversal. And I've noticed I've I've noticed one kind of listener who persists in believing that almost everything that I do is is done you know out of material. One guy keeps writing me. He says, "Tell about the time you worked in the circus." When did I work in a circus? Somehow he thinks that all you have to do is pull out of the... Tell about the time you were a locomotive engineer. That's what people want to hear. He says, tell, don't talk about the role reversal. He says, that's boring. That's boring. <laughs> I suspect he wears pink sweaters and wears little bunny slippers when he goes to bed with ears on him, you know, little kind with the little... Ear. Speaking of bunny slippers, I could tell you a story about bunny slippers that would curl your hair. You remember bunny slippers? I remember the time, one of the, one of the worst things that ever happened to me when I was a kid, uh, in the embarrassing, uh, terrible, uh, uh, the, the terrible reality of having suddenly somebody, uh, somebody present you with a problem that is a genuine life problem as opposed to kid problems. You know, you're running around. Now, most kids, and I'm talking about for men here, again, I must say this, most kids go through a stage when, when they are suddenly tremendously haunted Kids, boys, they are they are haunted by all kinds of things. Death, for example. Uh, a kid will go a, a male type kid. Now, again, I cannot speak for the female, but I know that a male type at about the age of ten through about fifteen will be convinced that absolutely, totally convinced that he is not going to reach twenty-one. He is not going to reach twenty-one, and further, more, if he does reach twenty-one, he will be a broken, blind Hulk. He's going to be blind. <laughs> he sees that. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? You always see yourself, and they're all going to be sorry, of course. Everybody who's ever been rotten to you is going to be sorry when they realized what life has done to you. In spite of you being an innately good person, 
they have been rotten to you, and now here you are. You are reaching 21, and you are a blind hulk, an elderly gentleman of 21, sitting in your rocking chair, thinking kind thoughts about a world which has treated you roughly. Now, this is a period, a very special period when you go through this. And you begin to think old. Kids at one point begin to think very old. They begin to worry about their mother and father's mortality. They begin to say, oh, boy, she's, my dad, he's, he's going to die any minute now. Of course, the father is, is, is pushing a cool 32. <laughs> they say, she's going to die, such an old man. And my mother, my mother's about to leave this mortal coil. And you look at them with a long, sad, sort of long, sad look. You know, they should be over there f fixing breakfast. And you say, oh, boy, just a few days and she won't be here. Of course, she's pushing 28. You see, <laughs> you don't know these things. You can just see the big, broad bottom of her bathroom. So, oh, Ma. And then she'll turn and say to you, what's the matter? What's the matter with you these days? What's the Nothing. She said, well, come on. What, what is it? Nothing. You don't want to tell her. It's because, Ma, I know you are not going to be with us long. And Dad, Dad is about gone. And I'm going blind. I will never. <laughs> and then you look out and you see the other kids you see. And they're all running around out the yard. You know, the whole bunch of other kids out there. And you say, oh, feckless youth. I remember when I didn't have worries. I remember when I wasn't going blind. I remember when I was not... My muscles weren't atrophying when I was not growing bent over. I remember when my mother was young and could run forever, was never going to die. Oh, gee whiz, I wish I could play mumbly peg with a clear mind again. This kid is roughly nine and a half, see? <laughs> now, I don't know whether women go through this. Men retain a little of that all of their lives, just a little bit of it. A man will often be sitting there looking out quietly over the long horizon, just drifting there. You don't see women often just saying, oh, I'm just looking into the middle distance. It's, it has nothing to do with self-pity, really. It's a vague intimation of something. And, and Friday night, of course, makes it all very special. Friday night is the one moment somehow you can, you can detach from the rest of the week. I have known old men who suddenly become young men for about 20 minutes between, <laughs> between Friday night and Monday morning. It's detached out of their life, you know. I have known elderly gentlemen who suddenly straightened up and hollered, Wow! Went like that for about eight minutes and then remembered, Oh yeah, it's Monday coming again. It's life back out there again. It's all part of that Monday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday syndrome. It's right there. It's laying there right now. Speaking of elderly gentlemen bent over, creaking, with fears of all kinds of, of innate, defeating, debilitudinous things. This is W.O.R. Never saw a more scary... Listen, I'll tell you, this is the only station on the dial that can honestly stand up and say, we're scared. Let's... Why, I, I, I walk down through the halls here. This is W.O.R. AM and FM, New York. It's okay, we made the break. I've walked down through the halls, and I've seen those frightened eyes of the salesman at dusk. I have seen them. I have seen I have seen Bob Smith sitting there in his office, just bent over, staring off into the gray haze of New Jersey. W.O.R. Does it to him. You see, I don't know what it's it's the same worry that the Yankees have. 
The Yankees are far more worried about the coming pennant race than the Mets. <laughs> I can tell you that. The Mets, you know, oh, you know why they're out there hitting the ball, running around. Oh, boy, every time the Yankees go trotting out on that field at the spring training, they go trotting out there with the haunted fear of men. Men who see the inevitable coming. There's got to be a day when some rotten, little, crummy, hairy ball club now floundering down in sixth place all of a sudden goes, whoom, you know, off into the dust, flies past them, and to the world champs. So WOR is a worried, harassed station. Now, if you've heard us say this is your family station, well, it is. But have you ever known that kind of family? That, that family that has nothing but life insurance. They spend all their time buying headstones. They spend all of their time worrying and, and scratching and peering off into the distance. And they buy themselves eight chains for their front door. That kind of family, you know. The kind of family that, that has burglar alarms attached to their burglar alarms to make sure that nobody steals the burglar alarms. You know, that kind of people. That's WOR's family. That's where we aim our stuff. Now, the one way to protect yourself, of course, as we all know, in this world of trial and tribulation, is financially. Right, gang? Hit the money button, please, will you? Just hit it there, gently. They don't make Scrapple like they used to. Have you tasted Park Scrapple? Listen, when I was a boy in Gettysburg, PA, my mother went to market every week. Bought Scrapple right from the farmer's wife who made it. Yeah, well, Parks, the famous flavor sausage people, make Scrapple... Listen, one week she'd buy from a farmer who put a little extra meat in, see? Next week she'd take from a farm with not quite so much meat, but a freer hand with a seasoning. Yeah, I got news for you. By then, we wanted Scrapple that cooked rich, gold, and brown. And that's the third kind of Scrapple, see? Then once a month, she'd send my father over to the next county for a Scrapple that didn't crumble up. Didn't taste as good, but with Scrapple, you give a little, you get a little. Not anymore. You want a meaty, spicy Scrapple that cooks golden brown and doesn't crumble? There ain't any such thing. Yes, there is, and the name of it is Parks, P-A-R-K-S. Parks Scrapple is everything you want, believe me. If that's true. Yes. Then they don't make Scrapple like they used to when I was a boy in Gettysburg, P.A. And am I glad you told me. You ever have the feeling that certain words are just innately, vaguely obscene? Scrapple is one of them. When I, when somebody first told me, when I, I'll never forget, you know, the, the first time I ever had Scrapple, and this has nothing to do with this commercial, I just heard him uh, talking there, but the first time I ever had Scrapple, uh, it's just an acquired taste, it's worse than olives, I can tell you that, I... I, I was in the army, really. I was in the army, and I was I was not in the army more than two or three days when they put this peculiar stuff in front of me. There it was, you know. You, you come through, and you got a tray. They give you a, the the flapjacks, and then here's this stuff. A little funny thing, you know. It looked like nothing that I had ever tasted before. And I took one little bite of it. And I said, "What's this stuff? Holy smokes!" And the guy sitting opposite me is in is in like transports of of delight. You can just see his eyes spinning. He says, that's Scrapple. I said, man, it sure is. <laughs> and ever since that time, the, the, the name has had connotations, you know. And while on the subject of uh, 
with the money. We've got a couple of commercials here since it's Friday night. Tomorrow night, we will be at the limelight. Now, uh, I, I have to make this announcement because there will be the inevitable confusion. There is not a basketball game tomorrow. You hear me, Matt? There's no basketball game tomorrow. Uh, that means that we go on the air about ten minutes past five. Or is it five minutes past ten? Depending on, on how long it takes us to get Ted Malley away from the microphone. He hangs on there like a, like a leech. But, uh, nevertheless, we will be on roughly at 10.05 and hang on until midnight. And that means if you're coming down to the limelight tomorrow, you have to come down earlier than the nights when we have a ball game. We've had the last basketball game. That's all over. And the Knicks are sorry about the way the season went. They're apologizing. And, uh, <laughs> and the whole scene, you know, it's been a mistake from the beginning, and we've decided now just to have the show. It'll be out from five minutes past ten tomorrow night, and for those of you who are going to come down, get down about 9.30. And uh, if you if you uh, would like to come down to the limelight, uh, the, the chances are always good, and I'm, again, giving you no guarantee. I'm saying this, though. The chances are always good if you come down, you can get a seat or two because there's often uh, a large number of chicken routers, uh, especially from Connecticut. And uh, if, you, uh, if you'd like to come down, it's on 7th Avenue South, directly south on 7th Avenue, right in the middle of Sheridan Square. And we start there about 9.30. The show actually goes on long before we go on the actual radio, which is about five minutes past ten. And, oh, by the way, people have often said, well, do you eat before you come down there or what? The food is excellent in the limelight. I would suggest that you make an evening of it. Instead of just coming down there for the show and having dinner somewhere else, come down earlier, say around 8 o'clock, and have dinner there before the show because the food is excellent. And uh, they, they have full course dinners in the bar and the whole jazz. It's a, it's a unique place. It's hard to describe it. It's not exactly a bar. It's not exactly a restaurant. It's not a coffee shop. A poor old Kelsey Marischal, who is one of the owners down there, persists in wanting to call it a saloon, but it is not. I'm sorry, Kelsey, it is not a saloon. In your imagination, he's somewhere back around 1878, I think, Kelsey. He likes to think of himself as a, as a derby hat wearer, you know, the kind of guy with a vest and all that. I'm sorry, Kelsey, it's not a saloon. <laughs> it's just the limelight. Now, let's see, uh, what else? We've got the Peugeot, uh, for those of you who have been hearing us talk about Peugeot recently and are possibly in the market for a new automobile this spring, I would like to suggest that you, by all means, investigate the French Peugeot. Uh, this is a car I owned myself. I owned one of them for five years. By the way, that's the longest I've ever owned a car in my life. Uh, I'm a great car fan. I've owned uh, probably uh, a total of 20 cars of different types, uh, since I first started to get involved in cars, I'm a sports ex-sports car racer. Used to do a lot of racing with sports cars. Uh, I still drive a sports car, and the longest I've ever owned an automobile is a Peugeot. It's one of the most satisfying cars I've ever owned. And by the way, it is a, a very inexpensive automobile. Uh, the Peugeot uh, is really comparable with many $4,000 cars. Uh, this car runs, uh, the, the prices start at $22.95 for the 403, and I think they run around 26 for the 404, which has about $400 worth of extras, and I mean genuine extras, sliding roof and all that kind of stuff, and is a magnificent automobile. 
one of the single most trouble-free cars I've ever known about, and is a beautiful car, magnificently finished. And the uh, cornering and the handling of this automobile, uh, I think, in the sedan class, are second to none. A rugged, solid car and a beautiful car. Uh, if you would like to find out more about the Peugeot, just send me a postcard, and we will send you pictures and data and the whole thing. You can, you can read about what the car really is. It's considered one of the seven finest automobiles in the world. Uh, it is one of seven cars in the world that are considered by uh, one of the top uh, European automotive magazines, one of the seven top cars in the world. Let's see, uh, can you name all seven of them? I wonder. Are you interested in what they are? The seven cars? All right. The number one, of course, considered a number one car in the world is the Rolls-Royce. Uh, there is the Mercedes. Uh, there is the Rover. Uh, there is the Porsche. Uh, the only U.S. car on the list, by the way, is the Lincoln Continental. Let's see. How many is that now? How many have we named? That's the Peugeot. Uh, no, the Jaguar is not on it. Uh, I'm not sure whether it is or not. Let's see. Maybe I might... No, here they are. Yeah, here they are. Rolls-Royce, Mercedes-Benz, Lancia. The Lancia, the Italian Lancia. Maybe you pronounce it Lancia, but it's pronounced Lancia there. Well, it's the Italian Lancia. Rolls-Royce, Mercedes-Benz, Lancia, Porsche, Lincoln Continental, and Rover. And the Peugeot. And this car is about roughly anywhere from a thousand to two thousand dollars cheaper than the next cheapest car on that list. So if you'd like to find out about it, send me a, a postcard to Peugeot, and don't try to spell it. P double O, J double O would do it just as well. And we'll send you pictures of it. And nobody, by the way, is going to come pounding on your door. They're not that type of people. They just like to send you the brochure. Let's see what else do we have? Leathercraft here. Boy, are we getting commercial. Holy smokes. Uh, Leathercraft. Uh, oh, yeah. If, uh, if you want to know what this is, uh, this is a vinyl outfit, and it's, a, it's an outfit that does not sell through the trade. It does not sell through, uh, through public sale. In other words, they sell only through decorators. However, they are having a sale. Uh, this is uh, the vinyl fabrics division of Leather Guild Incorporated. And they have a warehouse. You have to come directly to their warehouse. And if you want to have an interesting experience, if you are uh, designing anything or are decorating your pad and you're looking for some really good, interesting vinyl that can be used for about 5,000 different things, including car upholstery, by the way, or seat covers and one thing and another, I would suggest you, you investigate this. This is Leather Guild Warehouse. And they have tremendous buys on stuff that costs... It's very expensive stuff, by the way. Uh, now, many of these odds and ends, which they're selling out, are for, oh, a dollar a yard. They have a terrific assortment at three ninety a yard. And their Leather Guild warehouse is at 52 East 21st Street. That's 52 East 21st Street. And they're open Saturday, 9 to 5, uh, Thursday night until 8. You have to go right to the warehouse... And this is a very limited time sale. The address again is the warehouse is 52 East 21st Street for really superb vinyl fabrics of all kinds. Okay? All right, now. Uh, we're back in... Oh, one more thing. One more thing before we go any further. 
Uh, I have been getting all kinds of letters from people who have asked off and on to inform them of various types of writing that I've done from time to time. And in the current Playboy magazine, I have a short story. And I'm extremely proud of it. Uh, I think uh, I, I, have, I beat no drums for Playboy or one or the other which way. But I can tell you this. I think Playboy magazine is one of the most interesting magazines around today. A lot of people think that people buy it for that center fold out. That's ridiculous. That's paying an awful lot for a calendar. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is uh, literarily one of the most interesting magazines, I think, in the business today. And uh, I have a short story in the current issue. It's April, isn't it? Yeah, the current April issue. And I'm very proud of it. I worked like, uh, like, a, like a fiend on this thing. You know, speaking of short stories, and, and since this is Friday night, and, and uh, <laughs> why Friday night reminded me of bunny slippers, I don't know. Maybe it's the idea of George Hamilton and the yoke with, uh, with Jean Moreau. You know what? Uh, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, that's uh, uh, we've come full circle. I'd love to do a, a whole master's thesis on something like that, the, the role reversal in today's society. But I was about ten years old when this, when this, when I had this thing, and I was going right through that period, that period of looking out with with haggard eyes, bloodshot eyes, looking out into the dark fastnesses of the Middle West, you know, with the wind howling out of the lake. Uh, I guess kids who come out of that kind of geographic... I wonder how much effect... You know, when we talk about environment on people, and, and psychologists constantly do, generally what they mean is home environment. They mean of what kind of family you come from, what kind of economic uh, situation did you have, what kind of neighborhood did you grow up in. I don't know whether many psychologists have done much work in the true environment of a man. Now, I'm talking about the natural environment, the geographical environment. What this does to a guy, what this does to his thinking, what this does to his whole attitude towards things. You know, in other words, if a guy lives in a, let's say if you grow up living in the palm trees in Miami, you're, you're, you're born, you live down there, and you grow up, and out there you see nothing but this blue sky and this beautiful blue blue uh, ocean and the birds and uh, you see nothing but people on, on all hands having fun they come down for vacations what does this do to a kid who grows up in that atmosphere the geographical atmosphere that he's in how does he look at the world on the other hand if a kid grows up let's say living outside of Nome and there are the mountains you know and, and not only are there the mountains there's a Kodiak bear once in a while you hear Silence, and then in the long fastnesses of the night, he may hear. He hears the howl of a timber wolf out there in the woods, and then the big winter sets down, and the ice gets thicker and thicker. And then by, let's say, mid-January, the ice is thirty feet thick out there on the river. Great long fields of snow laying motionless under a, a darkling sun and the, and those those black trees outlined against the white mountains and those long gray skies and that 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 night that goes on and on and on for what does this do to a person i'm i'm curious about that you know we uh, they do know for example that people who live in the far north in places like uh, 
Sweden have a high suicide rate. Now, many people blame this on a, a socialized system. Uh, you know, they, they, they blame it on uh, welfare state and one thing or another. Nobody talks much about those gray skies, those short days and those long nights, that fantastic cold and the wind that howls out of the mountains. What does this do to a guy? Well, see, I'm a kid, you know, and I'm living, I'm living amid the sand dunes of northern Indiana. And off to the left, you can see Chicago on the, on the horizon there, you see. It's always there. You can see it lit up. And directly ahead of you, the steel mills, outlined against the black sky that goes all the way on up to Michigan in the Arctic Circle, just on the other side of the ice-rimmed lake. There it is, that steel mill, flickering red skies. And you can smell. I grew up, you know, I grew up thinking, thinking that fresh air smelled like decomposed kerosene. That's the truth. That is the smelliest country this side, this side of, of uh, Secaucus. I'm, you know, sometimes when I want to, when I want to feel, you know, like, like I'm going back home, I go over in the dumps right outside of Secaucus and breathe deep. The hair sprinkles up there on my chest, you know, my eyeballs glisten <laughs> back home. Oh, boy, what a great smell. Garbage. Ah, it's good to get out in the open air. Ah, ah. Well, we we were entirely rimmed in by steel mills and refineries. And I don't know whether you have been in the lee of a refinery when it's really cooking. Of course, you know what a refinery is. It's a big still, you know. And they take yeah, it is. It really is. It's a big still. And they take this raw, this this crude oil and stuff that comes right out of the ground. They take this stuff and they cook it. Well, I don't know whether you have been around when guys have been cooking crude oil. Oh, boy. And it has about 45,000 different variations of smell. You see, as it goes all the way down from, from the very highly developed, high-octane gasoline, which has a certain kind of smell, all the way down to that, that crud they use to put on streets. You know, they make that stuff. And, whoa, it smells. And, and you mix it all together. You mix that with about 4 million pounds of blast furnace dust. You throw a little coke gas in it. You put about uh, 18 miles of of, uh, of open hearth effluvia in this mixture. Then you put about 18 million dead toads, which are out in the swamp. You <laughs> you put you you bring all this together, you see, and you mix it with some cold air that has blown off the lake, which has, by the way, carried in the essence of like oh maybe 200,000 dead perch. And, uh, oh, maybe, uh, it's also brought in what the Lever Brother plant throws out. You know, we had the soap factory right there, too. You know, I, I don't know whether you've been near a soap factory. And Lever Brothers, oh, wow, you know, that, that stuff looked nice in the can, you know. When you see those nice soap flakes and you see those nice detergents and you see Crisco and all that stuff, oh, you should be near the plant. That's all I got to say when they're going full blast. And right across from them was the Amazo plant. Now, the Amazo plant takes corn, old decomposed ears of corn and that stuff, and they grind it up and they make it into whatever it is they make. When you mix all this together, and what have you got? You've got Hammond, Indiana, fresh air. That's fresh air. Well, all right, now, what does this do to a kid's soul? Breathing this eternally. <laughs> and the wind would come down and the winter would lay down there. Well, I'm a kid, see, and I'm, I'm about 10 or 11. Now, I, I suggest 
here that when you live out in the open plains where you see that flatness going all the way on through Iowa, you, you know what you could do if you stood up on your tiptoes in Indiana, stood real high up on your toes, in northern Indiana, right outside of Chicago, if you stood up real high, or if you got up on a box, you know, we used to do it once in a while, get up on an orange crate, and we'd get up there, and if you stood up real high and looked south, you could see Kentucky, 390 miles directly south of us. You could. And if you turned left, you see, if you turned left, all the way left, and, and looked north then, looked north, and stood up on your tiptoes, and if you look, you could look right through the number two and the number three blast furnace. Look right through. You could see the lake. You stood up on your tiptoes. You could see Canada. That's how flat it was out there. Now, if you turned right then and, and, and looked west and you st stood way up on your tiptoes, maybe got up on a ladder, you could see Topeka, Kansas. You could. You could see it out there. Yeah, you could read signs of it. The Topeka Drive-In. I mean, we used to look at that. Had a big hamburger joint. Now, 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 what does this do to a kid? That's very different from living down on McDougal Street, you know? You ought to see them kids. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's very different. And so I'm about 10 years old, you see, and I, and I got this vague intimation that, that, that the world was a big, wild, vaguely alien place in the sky stretched for 8 million miles, and we could see the, the great steam flying out. And one day, as I'm standing there looking out over the distant... The, those flat hills looking way all the way off somewhere towards South Dakota and I'm thinking that by, I'm, by the time I'm 21 I'm going to be blind if I reach 21 and my mother was about to die by the way my mother even at this day would be vastly surprised to hear that she, <laughs> right George uh, uh, she, she's as indestructible as an old day bed and, and I, I uh, you know, I, I think my mother's not going to make it. My dad is not going to make it. I'm going blind. Look at those kids. When my Aunt Glenn came to visit, I'm in the middle of one of those fantastic blue funks. My Aunt Glenn showed up. Oh, you got the Millers there? And I will tell you in just a moment what, uh, how much time do we have quickly? One minute to Aunt Glenn. Hit the button. <laughs> Miller High like the bright, clear taste in beer. Miller High like the champagne of bottled beer. There's only one champagne of bottled beer. Sparkling. Flavorful. Distinctive. Miller High Life. Brewed only in Milwaukee from a century-old recipe, Miller High Life has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear taste. Unequal, unquestioned, unchanging. Available on tap, in cans, and in the familiar crystal clear bottle. Miller High Life is always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. Yes, Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save the rest of this show for the Limelight Show. I'm going to save the denouement of this of this story for tomorrow night. I'm sorry. I just I just feel that that I've got to tell this tomorrow night at the Limelight. And if you if if you're angry and feel cheated that you didn't hear what happened with the bunny slippers when my aunt Glenn visited me with intimations of mortality 
flutter about my head, feeling that I was about to go blind, that my old man was not going to live past the age of nine, that my mother was already on her way out, and outside, Junior Bruner kept playing stickball and yelling and hollering, and Flick kept hitting out fly balls. You listen tomorrow night to hear the story of the great bunny slipper debacle. The awful case of the cross-eyed bunnies. I will tell you that tomorrow night on the Limelight Show, if you're man enough to take it. If you're man enough to stand up there and say, yes, it is true. My knees are watering. It is true. I did not figure I was going to reach 21. And now I, here I am, 107, and I still am worried. <laughs> Only this time you've got reason for it. The wind is howling out of the north, friend. It's Friday night. Pull in your gut. Walk like a young bull, a young stud, through the great Laredo of your mind. Stand in front of the silver dollar and hope for the best. You better keep your knees loose, though. There's something big in the bushes.